the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest uh, in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and uh, order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then, and of course, most importantly, uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with our Mormon friends. And and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the, the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know, the, 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 the sort of the requirement of, of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And, and I would suspect then to some degree uh, Mormons at some point in their, their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, Dr. Scott for me is that yes I've got heaven to look forward to but I also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with God and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and and yet I would imagine for a Mormon they don't share that experience and I wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with a Mormon? You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they uh, have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone an error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family, and even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism to be happy. And that they were all, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know. Here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If I think if I had, when I was Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with 
with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me. I tell you what, these 18, 19 year old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in the neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I, don't, I just don't need that. I, I have so much joy in, in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking, what do they know that we don't know? Mm. Let me ask you this. From from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God. He wants no other gods before him, that he expects me to live up to a certain standard. The same token, that same God recognizes that in my fallen sin nature, we've proven to be wholly incapable of that. And therefore, the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf. But I I don't see God as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move. Rather, I see a God that, yes, is holy and righteous, but is also loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is, is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head? Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite. Since I believed that God the Father was a former man who had lived on another planet, and that his wife, our wives, Heavenly Mother, had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life, I believed that they would be more sympathetic to my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course that completely hijacks and shanghai's the role of Jesus Christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our in our, in our uh, sufferings. And you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism, I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. And you can take those and look at any group around you to see if they, uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See, the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of, of the uh, of the uh, of the Bible is that He doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing; that, that He's going to be wiser tomorrow than He was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that 
he's not as wise as he uh, he wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it it makes him a lesser god because he's just one of us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And, you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to conclude our conversation on, Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that there are attributes that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are, in fact, a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free ebook called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to Latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, Latane.com forward slash cults. And you can get your own free copy of the ebook. What is a cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information again on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lots of exciting things going on in the arena of science. Most recently, of course, the big announcement of the successful landing of Curiosity um, on the planet of Mars and the amazing photographs it has begun to send back. And no doubt this is going to do much in terms of adding to our understanding of planets and the cosmos and so forth. Uh, more recently, uh, interesting confirmation of a Peter Higgs so-called God particle. He first came up with the concept back in 1964, and uh, recently our friends up at Cal. As much as some Christians kind of shy away from the notion of uh, science with the feeling that it kind of gets in the way of the truth of Scripture, my next guest, in fact, would suggest that there's much about science that confirms what we read in Scripture. Um, his CV, if I if I detail it all here, we wouldn't have enough time on the program. He has a PhD from the University of Toronto. He is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author of books such as The Fingerprint of God, The Genesis Question, The Creator, and The Cosmos. His newest book, an interesting title, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. How the oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. And Dr. Hugh Ross, I'd like to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
Uh, Hugh, first, if we can, just kind of your your thoughts on some of these uh, more recent news developments. Of course, your background as an astrophysicist, I would imagine you're, you've got uh, great interest in following what's been going on, for example, with the recent landing of that Mars rover uh, just last week. Yes, and uh, I've been in uh, print since 1988 and predicting that the remains of life will be found on all solar system bodies for the simple reason that Earth has been so prolific with life for such a long period of time uh, that meteors have struck the Earth in sufficient abundance as to transport Earth's soil to all solar system bodies. In fact, I got an opportunity to speak at NASA Houston a few years back where I said, we really need to target the moon as opposed to Mars. Because on the surface of Mars, we only have about 200 pounds of Earth soil for every 100 square kilometers. But on the moon, it's nearly 20,000 tons. And moreover, unlike Mars, the moon has had very little geological activity over its history. And when it comes to planet Earth, the fossils of Earth's first life have been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have those fossils. All we have is an isotope signature of Earth's first life. But we can literally go to the moon and recover the fossils of Earth's first life and establish who got it right on the origin of life, the Christians or the atheists. Amazing. So we, we, we find fur, further evidence of, of our own um, uh, lifespan here on Earth by going to other planets. Well, I mean, we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life by going to Mars, but uh, there's a good likelihood that they've been damaged beyond recognition. Uh, why I'm opting for the moon is that calculations already show us uh, that the fossils of Earth's first life arrived there uh, on low collision velocity uh, trajectories and therefore should be available in pristine form. And uh, the Christian model predicts that those fossils will be equally complex as the simplest life on planet Earth today. The atheists predict it would be orders of magnitude simpler. They also predict one species only, whereas the Christian model would predict that we should see a suite of species uh, with different uh, biochemical uh, metabolic uh, structures set up. We can literally go to the moon and prove who got it right. And you can do the same thing on Mars, but frankly, I don't think instruments like Curiosity have the technical capability to really do the job. We'd have to send something much more sophisticated. Whereas going to the moon, it'd be quite easy uh, to recover those fossils and bring them back to Earth for detailed analysis. And that analysis, then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Ross, has the capability, has the capacity of being able to differentiate between what they might would see as uh, particles that relate back to Earth as opposed to particles that are natural to the moon. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you've got many in NASA saying that life may have originated indigenously on Mars. If that's the case, we expect to see a different signature uh, in those uh, fossils and uh, molecular structure than we see in Earth life. And so it's relatively routine uh, to see whether the creationists or the evolutionists uh, got the origin of life model right by literally going to places like Mars and the Moon. But I'm saying it'd be a lot easier to do on the Moon than to do on Mars. 
I make reference to uh, the recent conversations coming out of uh, the University of California at Berkeley that uh, have kind of underscored some of the research that was done clear back in the early 1960s by Peter Higgs regarding the so-called guard, God particle. Can you comment, uh, Dr. Ross, on the, the recent uh, information coming out of UC Berkeley on the same? Yes, I think there's a good likelihood that the Higgs boson has been discovered. Uh, to really uh, fine-tune our particle creation models, however, we're going to need a fairly accurate measure of the mass of the Higgs boson. Uh, that still needs to happen. Uh, but the Large Hadron Collider has the capability of, of actually doing that. So let's wait a few more years, and, and then I think we can actually look forward to something much more exciting uh, than the mere discovery. Uh, but if you go to our reasons.org website, I wrote a series of uh, five articles on our feature called Today's New Reason to Believe, and it's about a year ago, uh, where I talked about two other particles, axions and sterile neutrinos, that in my opinion deserve the title the God Particles much more so than the Higgs boson. Uh, the discovery of those two particles, number one, can be done fairly cheaply. In fact, I suggest in the articles I wrote that astronomers probably have already discovered both particles. And with additional measurements, we could actually measure the characteristics of both sterile neutrinos and axions. And uh, that would really uh, bolster the Christian model for the creation of the universe and the creation of the particles. So I'm really anticipating uh, what astrophysics and particle physics in combination can really do uh, to build a much stronger case for a biblical creation model. If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting today with well-known astrophysicist, Christian apologist, and of course the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Information, by the way, as he mentioned on the website at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Now, we're going to come back after a brief timeout and talk about Dr. Ross's latest book. We typically turn to the book of Genesis for answers considering the origins of man and things of this sort. But how about the notion of turning to one of the oldest books in the Bible to find today's answers for scientific questions? We'll get to that part of our discussion. Best-selling author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross here on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now, I, I'm curious. We typically think of uh, Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to uh, the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us, I think, generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering? Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. But of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system. 
which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. You also notice the text is devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book, uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention is just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis uh, 1 through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think, again, argues that we need to take a fresh look at the book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology. So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive, in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there. For example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth. And folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing in the book of Job. Exactly. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again. Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of, of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found working through the pages of the book of Job in, some of, in terms of some of the, the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation. Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, Creation day one is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day five, God creates the soulish animals animals that are not only physical but soulish and that they manifest mind, will, and emotions and are capable of forming relationships not only with one another but with a higher species namely us human beings and last of all God creates the one and only species human beings the descendants of Adam and Eve uh, that can relate to God himself And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. We're also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being, namely God himself, uh, and to serve and to please him. 
Um, and likewise, when we look at these birds and mammals, we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us. Instead of coming to us, often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them. Well, likewise, the sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please Him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God. And the thing I've noticed as I traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities, where they're cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism. I, I frequently... Uh pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of, of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the, uh, the organization out of chaos resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this. Well, I've often taken scientists out into the high Sierras, for example, get them out into a subalpine meadow, and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response. We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for uh, uh, how the world came to be. And certainly there, there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38, 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put, perhaps, that we get more details about man's fall in Genesis and more details about the creation of the universe and specifically Earth and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of Job? Is that a fair uh, conclusion? It is. I think both points are valid. I mean, uh, for example, when you go through the creation days in Genesis 1, it implies that God created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Um, you know, where, for example, it, it says in Genesis creation day one, let there be light. doesn't say that God created the light or made the light. He uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day four, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And uh, what you notice on creation day four this is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, 
so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one, not because there was no sun or stars, but because God had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through. Mm. Uh, Job 38, 9 and 10 makes the point, or February 8 and 9, uh, that God had blanketed the seas with clouds, and those blankets kept the seas dark. So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit in identifying the clouds as a cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere. Creation day one, the atmosphere became translucent where light could pass through, but it's still overcast. And on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy uh, from scientific uh, skeptics. Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, a traditional linear fashion, uh, I would relate it to maybe you know, the assembly line uh, making automobiles, and that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion according to our own thinking? Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step by step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step by step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, but one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, not just one book. And that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter length or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and inter- interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, 
the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the texts in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation. If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Uh, The oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39. And look, too, at the ten animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called um, bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, and we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless. And so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no, no purpose or role in the human body. And uh, now we recognize that they, too, play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would never normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, and that would be evidence that, uh, that, hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount 
of um, uh, quote uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth because after all the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay and so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs but in the case of the human species we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of quote junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics so perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and have a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect that a lot of the design would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that is exactly played out. Part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. To the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job, uh, in our time that remains, a doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the Book of Job, is why do we see this list of ten specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top ten list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, But those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them. Uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with it. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is if you look at creatures uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they are fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech technology. Uh, So goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spent some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. 
Well, uh, what God does is He talks about these animals that He gave to serve and please us, and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them. And He mentions the Leviathan and the Behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But He says there's one species you're not able to tame. And that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride. And without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation, concluding in verse nine, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and it committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Taking us deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our guest, its author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, is always delight to have you on the program. that's going to do it for this edition of lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.